Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Everything is personal right here. Everything is personal right here Everything is personal right here Len and John rolling it up Listening as they change the industry Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. And we have a special guest with us today, Dr. David Bonanno, welcome to the show. And before I go into like what you do and all that, I want to get into more of the origin story. So uh, we were just talking briefly before the uh, before we started recording about you know you're missing LA. So where'd you grow up? Where were you born? So what's your origin story? We'll get into that first. Yeah. All right. Nice to meet you, Len, and and great to be here. So uh I'm from Connecticut in a small town, not not the rich part, but the dumb part. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying because everybody is now Connecticut. That's one of those guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not one of those guys. <laughs> um but yeah, yeah. Uh so I mean I, I have PTSD and or I, I did, I and uh so I became like an expert in trauma. And so when I was a kid I, I didn't have the best uh family life and then my mom had a stroke when I was 14 and then my dad 
died when I was uh, 15. And so then uh, I, I just really became depressed and, and just fascinated with why people are the way that they are and why don't they do things that are good for them and why can't people just be logical. And so um, then uh, I ended up becoming a psychologist so I could figure out what the hell is wrong with me. Well, let me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Let, let, let's roll back. Uh, because I want to, I want to spend a little bit of time on this because I, yeah. I want people to really relate to this. So when you were growing up, uh, you were growing up in Connecticut. Uh, any siblings? Oh yeah, so I had a younger brother. And uh, your mom got sick. You mentioned, and then your dad passed away. So when your mom gets sick, like how does that affect you? You know, when you were, you said fourteen, I think. How did that actually affect you as a as a teen with? you know, hormones, all these other things going on, school. What was your mindset at that age, if if you can recall? I think everything kind of went on hold, like in terms of my adolescent development. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like it was the end of the world to a 14-year-old. And my dad, he he took over. He did a a pretty good job of helping us feel like things were normal. And, And just when I felt like, things were coming back. He he had stopped smoking, but he started again. And then that's what caused lung cancer. So like, I wish that I had more help. Like, even if somebody would have just said, like, if you need anything, give me a call. But and it was in the 80s. And I don't know, like, everybody just seemed to be saying, well, you're a man now. So you know, take care of your mother and, and your brother. And of course, to a young person, that sounds really almost intoxicating. I mean, you want to grow up and be responsible. And it's like the movies, you know, like I wanted it to be like Braveheart. And uh, although, of course, that hadn't come out yet, but it fucked me up. (laughs) Well, that's that's why I wanted to kind of unpack a little bit. So your dad passes away. Once again, how old were you? Right after I turned 16. So okay. he was sick through 15. Yeah. Okay. So l- let me see if I can put the scenario together and, and, you know, jump in and fill in the gaps. You know, you're in your early teens. Your mom gets sick. What, you, you don't mind me asking, what was the con- disease or condition that your mom had? Oh, so she had a stroke. Okay. And became handicapped for life. Yeah. So I can relate to this. My grandfather, when I was a kid, had a stroke and then he persisted to have multiple strokes. So at first, you know, then the speech went, then the, uh, you know, the right side of the body went, couldn't walk, couldn't hold anything. And, and as a little kid, I, I kind of, you know, thought it was weird and kind of made fun of that. But I was, I was little. And then as I grew older, you know, I kind of started to understand. So I can relate. It's such a difficult thing for people because the mind is working, but you can't express yourself and you can't move. So that, that's been difficult. So you, so you were, uh, and then that's 14. So you're caring for your mom in the best way that you can. Your dad's helping all that stuff and your dad gets sick. Now I'm, I'm imagining that it's both of those diseases conditions are like, long-term disability type of condition. So there's deterioration to the person. You as a, as a teenager, you have to deal with that person actually getting worse and worse and worse. It wasn't like an immediate kind of thing. So let, let's see if we can unpack. You said it was a devastating thing. What, what were the actions that you needed to take? And, and then we'll get into the, the whole help thing. Uh, it's kind of interesting to me that 
you know, uh, and eight, I agree with you. In the eighties, we're like, I was a latchkey kid and come home, grab my bike and, and go kind of thing. And, and not, it's not the coddling that we do today for our kids. So I, I definitely understand that too. Well, you know, I learned to dissociate. I remember the day that my dad came home from the hospital and he sat my brother and I down on the bed and he said, I'm going to die. And then I just went downstairs and I just started like, um, working on some kind of wood project. And I was, I, I could feel like I wasn't in my body. And, uh, I mean, I think that was kind of a protectionary thing, of course. And then after he did pass, I couldn't cry for three years. I, and I knew there was something wrong with that, but I mean, it was just, I was just shut off and, I would even drive around listening to sad music thinking like I supposed to be crying and I, I wasn't able to do that. So, I mean, it, it really fucked me up. I, I, my brother started getting in trouble, you know, then he's like, you're not my father. And my mom's asking me, what do I do? What do I do? And I mean, I just remember being 16, like I got my driver's license the first day I possibly could. I drove my mom to physical therapy i drove my dad to chemotherapy and my brother to basketball practice and i was trying to do my homework in the car so of course my grades went in the toilet and my relationships with girls was that was just out the window that that just you know there was no time for that so uh it, it i really un- unfortunately um it just kind of crippled me emotionally and you know at that time len somebody gave me the book the power of positive thinking and that's the worst fucking book that I ever read. <laughs> because how the fuck am I supposed to be thinking positively with all this stuff going on? And one of the things that still really bothers me is when people put on social media or whatever, you know, all these stupid tropes like, oh, you can't change your circumstances, but you can change your attitude, all that stuff. No, you can't. Like, maybe you can if you're a really healthy person and your challenge before you isn't that great. But if you're screwed, you're screwed. And then trying to think positively about it is just going to make everything worse. I completely agree with you on that. Unless they say, yes, think positive. But in order for you to get that, here are the things that you can do on a daily basis for the next 30 days to try to help you do that. So there's action that you can take uh, with that, perhaps. But I want to go back and still kind of uh, unpack this a little bit more. When you were a kid and a teenager, who did you want to be when you when you grow up? Like, what were your interests? I was kind of a superstar in school. I I did really well. My teachers uh, were really impressed, and my parents were both school teachers. But they're from like old school Catholic culture where you don't want to have a big head and you don't want to brag. And so, like, you know, I'd come home and I'd, I'd be like, oh, my sixth grade teacher said, like, I got the best score on the standardized test that anybody ever did. And then they're like, uh, you're not brilliant. Like, you know, like, d- don't get over, don't get so uh, impressed with yourself. I, I said I wanted to go to Harvard. They're like, you're not going to Harvard, you know, like, so that really kind of screwed me up as well. And then when my dad died, uh, you know, there's all this unfinished business that I wasn't able to discuss with him and then yeah my mom then i think like those things really just broke her and she became um quite a narcissist and was just a real emotional parasite um for the last 35 years she just died a couple months ago and i 
I'm happy that she, I mean, I know it sounds horrible and I've had people tell me you only have one mother. You got to cherish her. I'm like, Oh my God. Like she has been nothing but a drain on me and my brother for the last 35 years. So yeah, whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I do not agree with that either. I, I don't <laughs> want to sound like so cynical, but, uh, and I am a psychologist and I, I do really help people and I do see the best in people, but like, you know, all these sayings that we have for ourselves, I, I don't think so. <laughs> like it fucked me. If sometimes it just fucks you up. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, and I'm glad you said that because I, I think people, you know, I'm a big believer in coaching and positivity and, you know, looking at it the bright side. And what I told people, you know, Tony Robbins and like, Oh yeah, it's a bunch of nonsense. Okay. Maybe there's a sales machine. Maybe there is a, you know, there's a business associate with it, but the, like there are certain things that, you know, he communicated like things are bad and it's not about, Hey, let's, let's put rose colored glasses on, but don't make them worse than they are. So our yeah. brain can actually make them worse when we think about it. So it's not like let's, let's shove that. No, no, it's great. Everything's great. No, it's shit, but let's not make it worse than it is. And let's figure out ways how we can counteract all those things that are bad. So yes, this is bad. What action can I take? to make it better. And the memento of taking action, I think is, is the journey of, of, uh, what was helpful for me, like in my situation. Also to relate back to you, I, immigrant parents and this whole thing of uh, bragging. I don't know if it's an eighties thing or I know if it's a immigrant thing or I don't know if it's a bully. This was in my household completely. And I still have that. When people give me compliments, my, my girlfriend says, you know, every single time I give you a compliment, you kind of laugh it off or like push it away. I'm like, well, it's drilled into my head that that's bragging. No, I'm not. Like, let's let's take it down. So that messes with your confidence as well. Yeah, totally. I I do agree. I think coaching is great, and I'm a little bit envious because coaches get like you know, as a psychologist, you're primarily sort of um, like treating pathology or, or things that are bad. Whereas with coaching, you're you're strength-based expanding wellness you're you're working with their strengths and you're helping people who hopefully are pretty healthy in the first place so i mean i i think there's that's a really good thing and and yeah like you know once you there is a time and place to lick your wounds i think that therapy oftentimes like makes you into more of a victim than maybe it should. Mm -hmm. I mean, therapists try to support you and, but you're kind of writing the story with you as the star and the victim and, and you're defining yourself by your unchangeable past. And it can really be seductive, I think, to kind of luxuriate in your problems. But I, I will say that what kept me going was hope. I mean, so, um, I, I just always thought or, or hoped that I would figure it out and, and get out of it. And honestly, I probably would have killed myself if I didn't have that hope, but I, I just always somehow knew I would get through it. So yeah, there's, there's definitely a value to that. Yeah. So go, going back to that darkness, um, you know, always searching for light and darkness, I guess, uh, two part question. First of all, uh, you know, as, as you're progressing through your journey, because of your personal situation, did that influence your decision to go into psychology? And then also the second part of that is because hope, and I agree with you completely. What in your life 
was that sort of light that was shining that even if it's a little bit of a glimmer of that light, what were you kind of uh, drawn to, uh, to still have that hope? If you, if you know. Yeah. I remember the first day of grad school and I was having lunch with a bunch of uh, fellow students and I asked the table, like, why did you guys all decide to become psychologists? And this woman, woman's like, cause I'm fucked up. Like, aren't you fucked up? And I was like, yeah, I really am. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I, I think that's a primary motivator right there is to figure out, you know, what's going on for yourself. There's, um, a school of thought that people who are, who are raised in an environment where they have to take care of other people, especially like their parents, then, uh, that just becomes, um, self-perpetuating and then you, you want to, um, take care of other people like for me there's this quote that robin williams had he said something like um you know the saddest people do everything they can to help others because they know how how shitty life can feel you know and i i totally identify with that um so yeah that's that was really kind of my motivation to do that and then plus like i i feel like i have ocd um my wife, my wife always said I have OCD. I, I was like, you know, what? I got PTSD and ADD. I don't want to have another D, you know. Um, but she, she looked up which strain of cannabis was uh, best for OCD. And it's called Buddha's sister. And I was like, shit, that's my favorite one of all time <laughs> because it really helps my, my, uh, symptoms. But anyway, that sort of obsession with figuring out why do smart people do stupid shit? Why do we do so many things that are not in our best interest, like addiction or relationship problems or like just like almost every problem we have, you can trace back to your emotions. And so I, I was dying to figure that out. And I thought about psychology, Len, 24-7 for decades. And then once I became a, a, a private practitioner and I had all my clients and stuff, then I was like, oh, man, I, I don't want to keep thinking. About that. I was thinking about other people so much that I kind of like, was able to put that down. And I, and I did come up with the answer of why do smart people do dumb things because your emotional fight or flight system takes over when you're triggered or threatened or stressed out. And then your, your robot brain, as I call it, just it goes offline. It's supposed to go offline and we're not supposed to be living with our logical brain. We're, we're emotional animals just as much as any other animal is. Yeah. I mean, so, such great things that you just said in that, uh, once again, going back to myself, I can relate to a lot of this, what you're saying with, with trauma. And, you know, I had uh, my own issues with the uh, parents and trust and, you know, got kicked out of the house at a young age. They called the cops on me and uh, all kinds of different uh, things. And, you know, I have a great relationship with them now. And I did a lot of therapy. I believe in therapy. However, and maybe, <clears throat> maybe that's something I should have done because I work on trying to help people as well in my own way. And, and that confidence in my parents tell me you won't last in going to be a doctor. It's not, it's not for you. You know, you may want to be a lawyer, but it's not for you because it's a lot of schooling kind of thing. So they drilled into my head, whether it's true or not, who knows at this point, but I used to read a lot of these things. Uh, Remember, I, I read this book, Psychology of Winning, and even in college, I went to physical therapy school, and uh, I my my psychology and sociology classes were my favorite classes. I really, really enjoyed all those kind of classes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about 
the differences in psychology. And the reason why I bring this up, I've been to like maybe seven, eight different uh, psychologists. There was a psychiatrist in mixed in or pharmacologist uh, kind of thing that wasn't a connection with me. What's, what's the difference? Because like for me, cognitive, whatever we call cognitive psychology, it seemed to be more affected than the Freudian kind of let's lay on the couch and let's unpack your, your childhood. Been there, done it. Great. All right. I understand it's my childhood. Give me some tools going forward, but it doesn't mean that it works for everybody. So what type of psychology and how do you know what works for some people, what doesn't work for other people? Yeah, that's a really good question. Just curious, where are your parents from? Uh, so my dad was born in Belarus in the old Soviet Union. My mom was born in Lithuania. Oh, right uh, on, So, man. yeah, old Soviet Union. So a lot of trauma from, you know, a lot of uh, Jews that were in the Soviet Union that were persecuted and had to travel and get the hell out of that country and uh, really not have a home for for many years uh, until they got to America. So, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and isn't it wild how uh, PTSD, it gets passed down? I mean, personally, I, I don't know how much gets passed down genetically or even ep- epigenetically, but uh, definitely, you know, people, how they carry themselves and act towards their kids is going to affect the kids. So, um, but yeah, so there there are different types of uh, schools of thought. And when I was at grad school in um, California School of Professional Psychology, it's now Alliant University. It's in Alhambra. Um, but I uh, I was learning psychodynamic, which is what uh, Freud started with. And that's really kind of out of fashion now. Um, it, it's really interesting and, and valuable in terms of the role of the subconscious. And I, I feel like Freud is um, the person who really – brought to society's attention how important the emotional fight or flight brain is. The the thing is like, you know, he, his ways of looking at things were a little crazy, you know, like how everybody wants to bang their mom, stuff like that. Like, you know, uh, so now like I had a friend who recently graduated from, uh, and he said, Freud is fraud. That's what they've been teaching, which is, I don't know, whatever. But like he, he was definitely the father of psychology for a reason. And as a matter of fact, I kind of, um, would like to sort of pick up uh, his work in a way. Um, I think that people really get enamored with their logical brain and it just isn't as powerful as we would like for it to be because, like I said, it goes offline. So that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. It's it's focused on changing your thoughts. It's based on the presumption that you have a thought and then you have a feeling and then you have an action or reaction. And that, that is often the case. But when it comes to PTSD, that's not the case. It's because you, you're having this automatic, um, fight or flight response and you're supposed to be doing that. You're not supposed, you know, if you run into a bear, you're not supposed to be considering all the pros and cons of every option that you have. You're supposed to be, you know, in my case, fighting that bear. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy, it's great for a lot of things. It's good for like anxiety long term. It's the most studied therapy because it's the most easily studied and it's the most appealing to a lot of people because it's so easily understood. Hmm. Um, there's, there's also experiential therapies, which are really gaining ground. Uh, hypnosis was the first one and I have a, a whole lot of training in that. 
But I don't do it anymore because, first of all, I'm so sick of people asking me, like, are you going to make me bark like a dog? Which, you know, you can't do that if somebody doesn't want to do that. But I also, saw that on Howard Stern before, so I must be real. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, hypno- I mean, those people, you know, in the stage shows who run up there, they want to be acting like fools. Like hypnosis can reinforce any intention that you already have, but it can't get you to do something you don't want to do. Um, and I, and you can have these real breakthroughs with hypnosis, but you don't have that back and forth dialogue that you do with regular therapy. And then of course you have to, um, use a lot of time to get them to go into trance if they're amenable to doing that. So EMDR came along, which you're probably familiar with. That's the first therapy to use eye movements and eye movements where you move your eyes back and forth are the best way, in my opinion, to interface with that um, psych, uh, f- emotional fight-or-flight brain. The problem with EMDR is it's still talk therapy, and it's sprinkled with eye movements. Talk therapy is based on the assumption that as you talk about your pain, you're releasing it. I disagree. I think you're rehearsing your pain after a while. And then the another assumption is the more you talk about it, the more you're releasing it. No, whatever you focus on, you magnify. So oftentimes when you go to therapy, you're really just reliving the worst shit of your whole life. You're ripping the scab off and you're not even cleaning the wound. You're just ripping it off for the sake of doing that. So I've developed a therapy that does use eye movement. I call it de-adrenalizing and it, is is focused so and it's really quite painless too len like i do have people remember what was traumatic for them but only one time they don't have to talk about it at all so if you can imagine somebody who has been molested for example if they went to a cognitive behavioral therapist that person may very well have them talking nonstop about it drawing pictures of their uncle's penis coming into their mouth i mean it's fucking barbaric in my opinion and if people can make it through it then there's some evidence that it can work but most people can't even get through that therapy so with mine um it's really quick and efficient and it works on the subconscious so it's abstract it's it's not concrete i can't tell people exactly what's happening in logical left brain terms because it's not a phenomenon of the logical left brain so i mean i i oftentimes spend a little i'll spend time with free consultations for people who want to see me for therapy i tell them what my therapy is what it does how it works and then they're like yeah i think i'm still going to use my copay and see some other fucking therapist for six years and maybe i'll try some pills that aren't going to work so yeah i mean i get i get a little frustrated and i will say that i'm always accepting new clients around the country um because i don't have much repeat business like other therapists do my my method really doesn't lend itself for that i i I look for people who have serious ptsd maybe even people who tried everything else before and then i cure them and i don't use that word lightly and then they don't come back (laughs) well i mean that's fantastic because uh usually it's a subscription model when it comes to a psychologist you go on and you're there for years. Uh, it's just the only difference is how many times a week do you see? You start with three. If it's intense trauma, then you go to two, then once a week, and you're sort of in this maintenance mode. But it's forever kind of thing. Like uh, there is no incentive. And I don't want to say that. Everybody's got – it's a business, I know, but some people have good intentions. But there is a maintenance mode that lasts for a long time and and having something i i was actually going to ask you there are methods uh, that uh 
that people have used before would be like a proactive formula. I I remember I I did this Kabbalah class and one of the things they they, uh, teach you is like before you react, pause and respond. So like uh, uh, Dr. Wayne Dyer, I think he had like a rubber band thing. You, You know, hit yourself with a rubber band really quick. It'll snap you out and then you can think about how to respond. Great. But this whole notion of fight or flight and this notion of PTSD, first of all, there are genes associated. You were mentioning genetics. That's sort of my area uh, of expertise, I, I guess, in, in a way, because I have a DNA company. That's what we do is genetics. And there oh, are yeah, that's right. yeah. there are a series of genes that are associated with a predisposition of PTSD. Now, if you compound that with a gene for PTSD, with a gene for um, stress reactivity, with a gene of, you know, slow rate of fear extinction. Now, under duress, you basically compound all those things. So it's not just the memories rattling around coming back. You may have a trauma, like I got hit on uh, my bicycle when I was nine years old by a car. Under stress, it can take that memory and bring it to the surface. I'm not dealing with it now. But to pull that back from before, as you were describing uh, PTSD. So, yes, there are genes that are passed on. There, are, there is a study of Holocaust survivors that was done somewhere in in Europe that of their kids, and they have seen an epigenetic, which is almost unheard of, but there is trauma that was passed on epigenetically from an epigenetic expression genetically to the kids as well. Possible. The cohort was very small, but there's a possibility of it. So the the question I have is like when you're actually you're using a system like like yours, and you can describe it in more detail if you want with the the rapid eye movement. Does that then allow you to sort of have that pause between a reaction to an actual response to a situation? Is that sort of how it works? Awesome question. No, um, what, what happens is it, it deactivates the association between the traumatic stimuli and your typical fight or fight response. Okay. I mean, meditation and mindfulness, I think people, that's when people say that it, they have that sort of extra time, um, to be able to, uh, react a little bit differently. Um, but, and of course, those are good things. I, I don't like it when people present those as cures for PTSD because, they, they're just not, but they are good for everybody. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you know, the way that I see PTSD land is, is different than most people. Most people, including the top uh, experts out there, they picture the brain as being like a video recorder. And then when you are reminded of something that was had to deal with the trauma, then your brain plays back the recording and then it freaks you out and then you're, you, you act a certain way. I think it's, it's so simple. I think it's, it's not, um, it's not that way. And I, in my, uh, my book is called your brain is a robo cat. Um, so like I, I just came up with this metaphor that there's the robot part, which is your, it's pretty much your cerebral cortex. It's, it's tied in with uh, logic and reasoning and speech and time. And then your cat brain is the mammalian brain. And I call it a cat because, you know, you can't get cats to do what you want. And oftentimes your emotions are a pain in the ass. Um, but what I was saying is that 
I think it's as simple as classical conditioning, like with Pavlov's dogs. Mm -hmm. So like, let's say I'm walking down the street and I get assaulted by a white guy um, who's tall and fat and this certain song was playing in, in, in at the time. So those stimuli are causing those neurons in my brain to fire. I'm taking in the, the, you know, all the sights and sounds and stuff like that. Then that gets coupled with my fight or flight response because as I get assaulted, that's what turns on my response. So then later in life, if I win the same area, that's going to activate this fight or flight response only because there's like that now association. Like it's, it's supercharged by intensity of emotion. That's why we all remember what happened when 9-11 uh, occurred because we had so much emotion. And so, yeah, when a traumatic event happens, like, it it's not memory in terms of exp I know I'm sort of splitting hairs. It's not explicit memory where you're replaying this story to yourself. It's implicit memory where it's just a simple feeling, like a gut feeling. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples I use with people is that I have a cat uh who something must have happened to him when he was coming into my house because when I let him out, he runs out where the danger is. But when I'm trying to let him in, he just starts smelling the freaking door and it takes me like 60 seconds to come into the house. And so my point is he's not thinking he doesn't have that logical brain to replay a videotape and to tell himself, Oh, it's dangerous when I come in there. So I shouldn't come in there. Nothing, none of that's happening at all. It's just this simple classical conditioning where he doesn't feel good about it. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I think that's really what's happening. And the only way to remedy that is to activate um, those neurons that are all firing at the same time. So I have, I do have people recreate the, the scene and then you replace it with something else. So if I could just give you a real quick example, like I had this woman who was, um, she was molested and then she was having sex with her boyfriend and it brought it all back. So she, she had repressed everything for years and then something just got triggered. That just, it was like a domino effect in her brain. It just it associated with everything else. She started drinking. She lost her job. She lost her boyfriend she saw me and this took only one session. I know it sounds a little too good to be true, but I had her remember what happened just for 30 seconds. She didn't talk about it. I don't, I don't want to hear about the details of it. And then I had her, uh, pretend that something else happened. So what we're doing there is we're replacing the traumatic stimuli with other stimuli and memory. It, as it turns out, it's not reproductive like a tape recorder. It's, it's reconstructive. And so it's malleable. Every time you remember something, you're actually changing the memory. So she pretended she had super strength. She threw her cousin across the room and he never touched her again. And they had a great summer. And so, I mean, as simple as that is, she, all of her sensors were gone. She didn't have to work at it. There was no homework. She didn't have to have time to think about, well, how am I going to react to this? It was just gone. And now she's doing great. She's married, had a baby, and she's living happily ever after. I hope. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great example. Uh, and you don't have to reinforce that. Like it's right. because like, for instance, people do ketamine. Uh, treatments right now. It's a, it's a big, uh, popular, uh, type of, uh, treatment for therapy. But what happens is there's a, a reintegration and there's follow up. So yes, 
I had a wonderful experience. Now I can see clearly. And we're, you know, we've done this with, uh, um, with veterans that have PTSD, but it comes back. So you have to do it again and you have to reintroduce and reengage. And, and so what you're saying is that it's a sort of a, a one and done, uh, for the most part, because you're replacing that memory and putting it in our, our memory's flawed anyway. So then you're taking that memory and you're replacing with a new memory of the event. So every single time you think about that, it's now a completely different type of memory, correct? Yeah. It's weird, man. Like, I had this limousine. So we before we had our third kid, we were going to get a minivan, and then I saw this limo for sale, 89 Cadillac, and I was like, honey, this is our destiny. We got to get this. I'm not going to drive a fucking minivan. So we were driving to New York City for my stepson's birthday. I had my whole family in the car. And the brakes went out on the highway. And so we were going 60 miles an hour. I had no way to stop. And the emergency brake didn't work either. Now, if I had my logical brain still online, I could have reasoned that I could have downshifted. But, I I mean, you know, I was in fight or flight. I have no idea how long it took. We finally went up a hill, thank God. And so when I got the car fixed, intellectually, I knew all day long that the brakes are fixed. And that didn't do me one bit of good. And any therapist could have told me, just keep reminding yourself that the brakes are fixed. You're fine. You're probably not going to have another accident. Did me no good at all. I'm a freaking psychologist and couldn't use any of my psychology on myself. And then I had a friend who I had taught this method do this therapy on me. I remembered what happened. I, um, and then I pretended that my car was a flying limousine and we flew over uh, the other cars and we flew to New York. We were on the Today Show. Of course, I know that didn't actually happened but the crazy thing is is when i got back into the car it was it was just gone like i had no my body was not reacting in any way if i really wanted to remember what happened i could but i just it was gone it's, well, you took, so yeah you, you got rid of the feeling associated with that event and changed it to a different event that it evoked a different type of feeling Correct? yeah yeah exactly like yeah and if it's funny that's the best because it's yeah. the opposite of being afraid. It's got to be funny. Uh, you brought up one other thing, and I have another question about the, the trauma in general. But you brought up this uh, music. Like when this traumatic event happened, there was a song that was playing. So I was, I'm wondering the triggers for those things. So let's say you walk again that it happened, but you, it was don't stop believing journey was playing. I don't know. I just song popped in my head. So now that you hear in that song, can it actually trigger that PTSD memory that comes up and can you disassociate yourself or change how that song affected you or what your connection is to that song? So you get rid of the trigger or do you just replace the entire memory uh, altogether? Like, Am I making sense of my question? I think so. I, I wish I could show you like on a diagram how I conceptualize what's happening. Uh, I guess like, so your, you, your fight or flight system remains intact. Like you're, you're never going to touch that or you wouldn't want to either. But yes, all the stimuli, audio, visual, smell, smells really, you know, very much linked into that. All that stuff gets frozen in a way so that they're all linked. And so, yeah, when you rewrite the story, you're, you're pairing different stimuli with it, then it would make it go away. It usually does generalize to mm-hmm. all five senses. If you wanted to be specific about that song, then, yeah, I guess I would probably have somebody 
um, imagine a different song. And then, yeah, then it would be, it, it wouldn't be connected anymore. If that answers so, your question. Yeah. So let's use this example. It's it, trauma. So we had a, we had an event that just occurred in Israel. There was a, a terrorist attack. Uh, people were massacred. So, I mean, you have, first of all, you have the people that witnessed it. Second, or you have the survivors first, I guess. You have the people that witnessed it. You have the people that came in to clean it up. You have people that the reporters and press and government officials had to see photos and videos and all those other things. Then you had all of us that are witnessing this for the first time. I mean, like on social media, we've never had an event uh, that that was, yes, you brought up 9-11, but social media didn't. We didn't have pictures of people being burned to death and stabbed and heads cut off and all that stuff. So how do you disassociate? How do you change the narrative of the story of PTSD when it's like so prolific everywhere? How do you do something uh, using your method with an event like that just occurred as an example? Well, I do think it's important for us to be able to make sense of things uh, because like if you can't, if, if something is just so senseless, which I mean, this really kind of is, then, then you start to feel like, well, if, if I don't understand what happened then, then what the hell is going to happen next? And you, you kind of, right. And, and so you become fearful of almost everything and you're, you're almost always activated or adrenalized as I call it, because you, you just don't know what's going to happen next. So, I mean, if something happens that like, like, all right. So I had a, a guy come back from Afghanistan. He was a veteran. He got shot. Um, he almost died. He didn't have PTSD because it made sense. There's good guys and bad guys and he's not there anymore. And then he came, he bought a house and he became friends with his neighbor. And then the neighbor drugged him and sexually assaulted him. So now he doesn't understand why anybody would do that. He can't trust anybody at all. And he's totally screwed up. I mean, I did really help him a lot with that. But yeah, so if you see, if you have somebody who witnesses such horrible stuff, I can still really work with that. And as a matter of fact, when it's, it's easier to work with a single event trauma than complex PTSD, which would be something that happens over time, like abuse, for example, from a parent. So yeah, even as horrible as it is, uh, you, you can have them change the story. I mean, of course, it's very, difficult because it's so in your face and if and if somebody's still living there for example and they're still seeing you know atrocities or being reminded of all the time it's it's a lot more difficult because you're kind of like i I sort of see my therapy as sort of like doing mental surgery and then you're just in and by being reminded of it all the time you're kind of like ripping the stitches off so i mean that's a really good question but you you can treat that i i would say though it it would certainly be great if that person wasn't in the situation anymore. Yeah. The thing that's interesting, I'm so curious because this is happening now and there's going to be so much trauma that comes from this because you have an event, you have those things, but also you have deniers of the event. Uh, you have justifiers of the event, the whatabouts and all those other things. So, and you have physical threats. I see what's going on in college campuses and all these things. And it's just, it's, it's really interesting to me as, as somebody who's sitting and watching this occur to say, like, how can people that actually went through this and that have a, a direct connection, how can they heal from this when it's sort of, uh, another Holocaust thing? But this time it was filmed by the people who did it and you're still have people denying it and saying, 
yeah, it's justified. Baby's head, who cares, kind of thing. So how that affects the people, how that affects the people that are supporting, and, it, and it's it's sort of this going down this middle line of we're anti, we're pro, but the humanity part of it is lost. So, yeah, I mean, you can, I don't care about the government stuff, but there is, you know, the human part of it that to get justified. So replacing this with another, uh, you know, another event that happened is probably very challenging because it's in your face, constantly repeated over and over and over. So I was just wondering if uh, you have any thoughts uh, on our approach to, to this, the people that will come to you, hopefully with, with that kind of trauma. Well, all right. So if, if somebody loses somebody, another example, I had a, a, a veteran who lost his best friend on the battlefield. The guy bled out and he, uh, my, this, my client, he had so much guilt. He was like, Oh man, if I could only have uh, seen it coming and done something about it or saved him or whatever. Um, and so what I did was I had him, uh, you know, recreate the story in his head. And one thing you can do is you can have the person talk to the person that they lost and whether it's like, you know, some people believe that you can actually speak with people on the other side. I, I do, but I don't want to try to, you know, push that on anybody. But even if you're just imagining it, then what usually happens is like, well, th- for this guy, this was really cool. Like his friend said to him, why the fuck have you been picturing me at my worst moment of my entire life for all these years? And why don't you just picture me like when we were at that bar and we were hitting on those chicks and we had such great time or whatever. Like, that's what the guy said. To, he's like, whoa, my friend's like kind of mad at me. You know, like, and I don't know if it's true or not or if he was just imagining it. But one thing that happens when you're moving your eyes back and forth is you get a lot of perspective and you're really getting in touch with your wisdom and your creativity. And I, I never try to take too much credit for uh, healing my patients because I feel like I'm just creating the conditions for them to heal themselves. So when somebody loses somebody, I will often have them imagine talking to whoever it is. That's almost always very cathartic. And then if somebody was victimized, I would have them, I would say, listen, this is your, your imagination. Go ahead and indulge yourself. You can, you can imagine victimizing that person or, you know, kill them or torture them or whatever you want to do. And sometimes people do that, but almost all the time, people don't want to do that. They don't want to go to that dark side. They, they're just like, well, that person, you know, the, 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 the victimizer, he, he, I feel bad. They often have empathy for that person. It's, it really, you know, I don't want to sound like y'all lovey dovey, but like, you know, it seems like, the, the good side wins out and people are able to get in touch with their humanity and even the humanity of the people who victimized them. So it really can be very uh, cathartic in that way. Before we get into some of the fun questions that I have, uh, I have one more trauma question because you mentioned ongoing abuse. So I, I've talked about this before in my podcast, but I had a, I had a pretty abusive uh, upbringing physically, mentally with my dad we didn't speak. There was a tremendous amount of anger and all those other things all, all gone. Now I speak every day, love my dad. I, I don't have, I don't have the same, like I actually don't have the same feeling connection to what happened. Like I know what happened. I'm not denying it. Yes. But that emotional connection to it went away and it took a lot of therapy and it took a couple of other, other things and conversations with my dad on, you know, apologizing and 
that was then. Let's let's try to build a new relationship going forward. So, but you mentioned that it works differently with people that have ongoing trauma, uh, you know, like like abuse for years. So how how does that work? Is that is that similar to like the situation I have with with my dad, where we addressed what was and said, let's build a new relationship going forward, uh, or, or does it is it something else? Yeah, well, I mean, that's nice. That's nice. I'm glad to hear that that happened. And and I guess you and your dad were able to replace a lot of those negative experiences and stimuli with positive ones. And that's that's great. And your brain can learn over time that, it, you know, you don't have to have that traumatic reaction. It is difficult when somebody is continues to be abused. I mean, it's easy to say they shouldn't be in that situation anymore. Um, I know it's very difficult for a lot of people to escape a situation like that. But one example is I had this woman who was um, humiliated by her uncle in front of her entire extended family. She was Filipino. So it was really, you know, they're really tight, knit, big, huge family. And she would see him from time to time. She'd always really avoid him. She had really, she was terrified of him. So we did a session and, and she rewrote the story uh, and she pictured him as Barney, you know, like the purple, you know, hey! yeah. and so that that for her was funny. And it was the opposite feeling of uh, of being terrified. And so then, like, she went to to another family reunion, saw him and she had no reaction at all. She talked to him. And then I asked her, how did it go? And she said, oh, yeah, it was totally fine. And I'm like, so do you think the therapy helped? And she's like, oh, yeah, I guess so. And so that's a really kind of a strange phenomenon of my therapy. It's not good for me because people sometimes forget that I actually helped them that much. But I think what happens is it just restores normalcy in such a thorough way that you kind of even forget how fucked up you were. So, I mean, yeah, if you're, if somebody's in an ongoing abusive situation, it's not going to be good and hopefully they can get out of it. But you can also, maybe help them to become a lot more centered and strong in order to be able to get out of it. I have one more question around that. I said I wasn't, but I want people to buy your book and I want you to talk about like where, where to engage with you and all that stuff. And we'll get to that. Uh, how did you come up with this method? I mean, you went to psychology classes, you saw, uh, you learned a lot. How did you come up with your specific uh, unique method? Yeah, I, I tried so many different things, uh, practicing and also as a client. And, and I did, um, I was doing EMDR for four years and I would get so messed up after every session. I have to plan time to go for a long walk because I would just be so triggered. I couldn't even drive home. Mm-hmm. I'm questioning, is this doing me any good? And then I heard about this one woman, um, named Lainey Rosenzweig and she learned EMDR, but she took it in a different direction. She basically took, most of the talking out of it and really made it solution focused. Her method is called accelerated resolution therapy. Mm-hmm. So mine is a derivative of that. I think it's better than that. I, and, and there's a lot of differences. Uh, but yeah, that's really kind of gave me the, the main impetus because I was practicing ART as they call it. Uh, and I was hitting home runs with my patients where I was, I was, I had been stuck with some of them for a long time and, you you know, just getting over that emotional reaction. And so I started hitting home runs and then, yeah, I I turned it into my own thing. And, um, and then, yeah, I wrote, wrote the book and I have all my theories and all that stuff. So I'm going to be writing more books and I'm working on Ted talk too and stuff. Awesome, man. Me, me too. 
Oh, cool. cool. <laughs> I have my book and I, I, I'm, I did a, uh, I did a small, uh, TED talk, but I will, uh, I intend to do, uh, uh, the main stage at some point. In the awesome. All right. So since you brought this up about cannabis, I, and I was wondering if you remember, uh, your first experience with cannabis. Oh my gosh. So, um, yeah, I'm 52. Are you sort of similar age? I'm the same age as you. Yeah, yeah. So Nancy Reagan, you know, just made everybody feel like if you smoked a joint, you're going to go straight to hell and, or, or, you know, uh, start killing people. I, I was so afraid of marijuana. I never tried it until, well, even after college. So I, I ended up going to South America after I graduated. I wanted to learn Spanish and I was in the middle of Colombia, the middle of nowhere. And during a time where the State Department was not re- recommending people go there, it was all the drug wars and all that stuff. But here I was um, on this beach in the Caribbean, and you had to walk to get to, uh, to 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 this place. I ended up meeting this guy from Connecticut. We had both hooked up with the same person, and we became friends. It was just the weirdest coincidence. He had this carrot that was like five inch or just huge he burned it into a pipe and he was like you want to try you want to try it so i was like yeah i guess so the time was right so that was my first time i was 24 years old and it was fucking great (laughs) 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 i just walked on the beach back and forth in the was that cartagena where we're in colombia yeah um it was near that it was near barranquilla uh in parque tyrone it was a national park So yeah, I was just walking back and forth on the beach in the moonlight singing Frank Sinatra to myself. And I was like, this is the best. (laughs) That's, that's great. Um, so, uh, music, a couple of music questions. I'm a big music person. Uh, do you remember? And if you do, what was that? Uh, the very first concert that you attended? Oh yeah. I, I saw Robert Plant. Um, and then, I uh I was drinking a little bit. I I didn't drink much at all at that time and then I I went to the bathroom. I forgot where I was and I I I finished the concert. I watched most of the concert by myself. I couldn't find my friends. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like fun. Well, what was the last concert that you attended? Um it was actually Ani DeFranco with my wife. Oh. Yeah, she's she's, good. She's, a, she's a good friend of mine. No way, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, awesome. She seems really cool. She's super cool. Really, really, really nice person. I saw her last time she was in LA. She performed the Ford, uh, theater, really, really small theater, really great crowd. We got to hang out afterwards and engage That's in, awesome, some, man. in some cannabis as well. Boom. <laughs> um, okay. So this is a question that gets people and I want to preface. So the question is, and I'll let you give you some time to think through it. Uh, in, in a year, you're only listening to five albums. Now, my, what I'm going to preface is you don't have to name the actual, like, title of the album. It can be like a Robert Plant album since you brought it up, for instance. So what would be those five albums that you would listen to for the next year? And you can only listen to those. Right on. Um, I would go Frank Sinatra <laughs> and maybe even Elvis. I'm kind of old school. But then maybe uh Tiesto, I, I like uh dance music club music mm-hmm. and um Led Zeppelin 
And uh, then uh, I guess I'll add in Lenny Kravitz. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. So last bonus question, and we'll talk about where people can uh, get in touch with you and get your book and all that stuff. Uh, please describe what your room looked like growing up. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, pretty, pretty chaotic ADD. So I had stuff just all over. I had a, a TV that I bought with my paper route and I was really proud of that, but I had to put a book over the speaker so I could watch it at night without my parents knowing that, that without them hearing it. And I had a green carpet, which I really liked dark green and I had a waterbed. Uh, nothing in the walls, no, uh, no, uh, yeah. posters or pictures or anything of like that. Yeah, I, I must have, uh, I wasn't, um, this, I can't remember. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know what I had on my okay. walls. Probably not oh. much. Okay. Well, waterbed is pretty interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, David, where can people uh, find out, where can they contact you, where they can engage with your content, where they can get your book, anything else that you want to let people know about? Yeah, so uh, my website is www.doctor, then my last name, Bonanno. And the way, that, the reason I say Bonanno is because you're supposed to linger over the two N's at the end. So it's B-O-N-A-N-N-O, of course, in Italian. And, uh, dot com. So drbanano.com, there's a link to my book, or if you wanted to go to Amazon, you could just look up RoboCat book. And then, um, yeah, I'll be having a TED talk on uh, all this other stuff coming out. I'm going to have actually an online course, Len, where I'm going to teach my method. And you don't even have to be a therapist to learn it because you really can't go wrong with it. Yeah. And so regular people can ha- hit home runs with their loved ones. And, and I really want my group, my goal for my career is to spread this therapy around the world as much as I can. Incredible. Well, David, thank you so much. It's been enlightening and I really appreciate your time. And I hope everybody takes advantage of this because I mean, you don't have to have PTSD or trauma just to be able to disassociate yourself from you know, things in your life that are not that pleasant. And I think your method would be a great way to be able to do that. So thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Lynn. Take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Canachicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.